Before we begin, a reminder. There are a lot of curse words in this podcast, and some of them are spoken by grandmothers. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Previously on 544 Days. There was a big division within the government of Iran. There were those who were absolutely opposed to any negotiations at all with the so-called Great Satan. The deal could have not happened. So again, if it's like, well, is there going to be a deal? Well, it can't be a deal unless Jason gets out. Well, if the whole thing falls apart then, then Jason doesn't get out. Fortunately, your friend and my friend, Jason, is accused of a very serious offense. And I hope that he's cleared in a court. But he will have to face a court. Six months after I was arrested, the IRGC finally let me talk to an Iranian lawyer. My first and only meeting with her happened in the office of the judge in my case. He was sitting there with my case file open, listening during the entire session. At one point, the judge interrupted the conversation with my lawyer. Why are you bothering with all of this, he asked. You already know I'm going to sentence your client to execution. Anyone covering Iran closely knows about Abul Ghassem Salavati. I'd been hearing about him for years. He's the judge who presided over Iran's most sensitive national security cases. Still does. But don't be confused. That's just propaganda speak for show trials. Salavati is fearsome. Just consider the bullet points on his rap sheet. Human rights groups refer to him as the judge of death or the hanging judge for his prolific use of capital punishment. I know, I know, sounds like some maniacal supervillain. That's not exactly right. Throughout this whole ordeal, I had to answer a lot of very stupid questions from dudes who had very little experience of the world beyond their own twisted domain. Guys whose whole ideology depended on not understanding things like a reporter emailing sources or young people dancing to the song Happy. But without a doubt, Judge Salavati was the dumbest of them all. If I were to pick him out of a casting call, I, I would cast him as the thug rather than as a judge. That's my mom, Mary Rezaian. I think he was chosen for that role because he looked fierce and could make a big show about being dangerous. So people would be afraid. Were you afraid? I was not afraid. Were you afraid for me? Um, you know, I had, I had reviewed all the various court cases that various other journalists and other people 
dual nationals and others had gone through. And in my estimation, you were going to have to go through a court process, probably be convicted, maybe even be sentenced to death, and then it would be commuted by some higher Supreme Court. You can imagine that somebody listening to a mother saying, yeah, you know, I think I figured you were going to have to go to court and I figured you'd probably get convicted and you might even get you know, the death penalty. But, you know, I, I wasn't that worried. You're going to need to explain that a little bit. Okay. Well, realize I had 50 years of living with Iranians and also watching what the process was. Several people were reminding me that Mary, the verdict is already in. There hasn't been a trial yet, but the verdict is already in. So we have to go through this process to get to the other side. By now, you've probably figured out that Mary Rezaian does not scare so easily. But going through the process and getting to the other side, for a guy who's being held incommunicado in an Iranian prison, that felt pretty fucking precarious. And at the same time, I knew the nuclear talks were heating up. If the U.S. and Iran signed a deal and I wasn't part of it, I might be up Shit's Creek. I'm Jason Rezaian, and this is 544 Days. Episode 6. My trial, the nuclear deal, and the puzzle of whether either of those things could lead to my freedom or leave me in prison for the rest of my life. I was beginning to despair that you would ever get out. It was a sham trial from the start. You can't do what you can't do it. Go back and get more instructions or just say it can't happen. I'm thinking, holy shit, these guys are in a pretty bad way if they're asking me to help them pull off this trade. With my trial looming, Brett McGurk was deep in talks with the Iranian intelligence services. Remember, in their first meeting back in December of 2014, the Iranian negotiators put an offer on the table. A prisoner swap, like the U.S. and Soviet Union used to do during the Cold War. They said they're open to a prisoner exchange, and they dropped a stack of, I think it was every Iranian, Iranian-American, anyone who had any relationship with Iran in any way in our prisons, from armed robbers to sanctions violators to anything. And they wanted them all released. <laughs> so that was their opening quasi-offer, which was completely ridiculous. It was ridiculous because some of these Iranians had been convicted of serious crimes, including violent ones. And they'd been given lawyers and due process in the U.S. justice system. It's by no means a perfect system, but their cases were nothing like what I was facing. We left that first day with a kind of stack of names that they had given us. Most of the names on, the, on their stack were totally unacceptable. So we had to think about what to do with that, or even if it was worth having a, a follow-up at that point. Their opening offer may have seemed way off base to McGurk, but the Iranians were confident that he'd come back with a counteroffer. And they were patient. Having grown up around Persian rug dealers, I can tell you that any negotiation with Iranians requires flexibility and time. My mom knew that too, or at least it became clear while she was in Tehran. 
After I got to see her on Christmas, she was allowed to visit me once more on New Year's Day. But then the next week, she left Iran. I left because I went to see the media judge, the first judge you were dealing with, and he made it very clear to me that I was not going to be able to see you again until your trial started. So I went back to my Istanbul place with the full expectation that I would be back there by mid-February. But as it was, they kept postponing your trial, and so months went by. From Istanbul, Mom stayed in constant contact with Yegi, who kept her updated on what little information was coming from the judicial system. Over the next few months, though, Yegi kept pushing my mom to come back to Iran. Based on Islamic law, mothers have more rights than wives. Like, wives get screwed from all angles. <laughs> when they want to take you to prison, they take you with your wife. But when it comes to rights, you have, like, zero rights. Did you kind of press for her to stay or come back? Definitely, I pressed her. I don't know if she has told you or not. I pressed her so hard <laughs> that she had to come back. And I understood the situation wasn't easy, like for months and months being in hotel room or at my parents' apartment. It was very uncomfortable. I have no doubt about it. Throughout the time I was away, I was in contact with Yegi, and she was telling me how miserable you were and how you were not eating and the various illnesses that you were dealing with that they were not treating. And so I was... Um, I was quite concerned. We all were. Um, she also said your teeth were turning black. And <laughs> so, so I don't know what I was expecting to find. Were my teeth black? Your teeth were not black. That was part of the ex exaggeration <laughs> based on, you know, extreme love and, and concern. Yeah. And you had said to Yegi, you said, I want my mom to be there when I walk out of prison. I want her there holding my hand when I walk out of prison. So I think she made that up. That's also part of that exaggeration and deception. But it sounded oh, great. Really? It sounded great. <laughs> I don't remember ever saying, I want to hold my mom's hand. I mean, you know, but maybe. I mean, it, it worked. As long as it worked, it worked. It worked. It worked. <laughs> My mom returned to Tehran in early May 2015. Once the authorities realized she was back in town, they called her to another meeting with the guys wearing black, the IRGC. And this time, they had a request for her. They said to me, please speak to Secretary of State Kerry or Mrs. Kerry or Wendy Sherman and ask them to make a trade for you. And that just about knocked me off my chair. I was not expecting that. I mean, I was really surprised. And I looked at them and I said, well, I can't do that. I'm just a private citizen. You know, I can't just pick up the phone and, and talk to Secretary of State Kerry and... Yeah, he picks up the phone, calls you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't tell him that. <laughs> they probably knew it. <laughs> I'm thinking, holy shit, these guys are in a pretty bad way if all of a sudden they're asking me to help them pull off this trade. So then they said, well, okay, so you're not going to make that call. 
then would you write a letter to our commander saying that I was not willing or able to be in contact with Secretary Kerry or Wendy Sherman to ask for a trade for you. Amateur hour at the Apollo. Well, that's how it felt to me while I was sitting in that chair. And then I said, no, no, I don't want to write a letter. And then maybe I felt sorry for them because I said, and I don't have my glasses with me. (laughs) (laughs) So then they, you know, I was ushered out and that was, that was the end of that. They let her and Yegi start visiting me again. But ever since I'd gotten caught trying to pass Yegi a note months earlier, there were new policies in place. Now we had a thick pane of glass separating us, an old telephone receiver to talk through, just like in the movies. And Yegi and I would have to take turns passing the telephone back and forth. You were telling me, look, Mom, this has gone on so long, and I need this to end. And it was unfair, and they were putting pressure on you to admit and confess. To what? To being a super spy. Every time we came and visited you, I helped her take lots of notes. Like all the details that we experienced that day, we were told, we saw everything. And then communicate those to either your brother or to Washington Post people or to friends, family, those people that you wanted them to write about you. But also she and I wrote like two or three hundred different letters to different offices. Every evening she and I would come up with the text, both English and Farsi, and then we'll find different addresses around human rights office, foreign ministry presidential office. I mean, yeah, everyone. Another part of the effort? My mom went to see Salavati, the judge of death. His court is in a large judicial building. And in order to get in to see him, first of all, he had to give permission. We'd be sitting downstairs waiting for the approval by phone, to come upstairs. And how many times do you think you saw him? Uh, Probably between five and seven. Judge Salavati is a very uh, ferocious-looking person. Initially, he was gruff, but also kind of curious about this American. I probably was one of the few Americans that he'd ever met. And as time went by, it became more... I don't want to say cordial, but more um, familiar. So that at the end, he was calling me Mary John, which (laughs) is very strange. You have to know that for Iranians, when they attach either John or June to the end of a name, it means dear or beloved. So for the judge to be calling me Mary John (laughs) was totally weird. Mom was getting on the good side of the judge of death. But on the issues that mattered, he wouldn't budge. No bail, no increase in phone calls or family visits, no promise of a speedy trial. Meanwhile, the court had finally given me access to a lawyer, the one I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. She was a human rights attorney, 
who was doing her best within a system that's obviously rigged against the kind of clients she represents. People like me. She seemed courageous and clear about her understanding of the law and what rights you had. And, you know, she was willing to march into Salavati's office or to the various ministries and so forth. The Washington Post had hired a team of D.C. lawyers to work on my case. Dave Bowker was one of them. Because of Iranian law, she's not able to take advice from lawyers outside of Iran. But we looked carefully at your case and we made our views generally known. Can you talk about those conversations about passing on to her what you expected would be thrown at me in court? Yeah, we had to be really careful about how we did that because we didn't want to put her in any jeopardy. We shared with the family how we would litigate such a case here. Dave couldn't talk directly with my Iranian lawyer, but my family could. So he passed advice about how to defend me through them. We were making arguments not just for the judge, but for everyone else who was involved to make sure that they understood how preposterous these allegations really were. When we did make these arguments to any audience in Iran, you know, there was a, I don't know, maybe a a big sigh, like, oh, if only you knew how little this really matters in the trial. So maybe the verdict was set. But other countries that still had diplomatic ties with Iran would be watching. Dave and his colleagues were lobbying those governments to bring up my case every time they met with Iranian officials. Looking back now, it was one of the most important things they did. At 8 a.m. on May 25th, 2015, I was told to get dressed because my trial was about to start. My usual IRGC chaperones drove me to Salavati's courtroom in the center of Tehran. My mom and Yegi showed up too. We got there early. Now this building, you would go in, you would leave your phones, and you would enter a large waiting room with perhaps 60 chairs and a big screen TV. We, we didn't know if we would be able to attend the trial. So when we arrived, we were told to wait. And this big screen TV, that particular day was showing Dances with Wolves. I've always wanted to see the frontier. You want to see the frontier? Yes, sir. Before it's gone. So, I've never watched Dances with Wolves. There's two things I know about. It's got Kevin Costner, who I'm not a fan of. Mm -hmm. Got a lot uh, of buffaloes. Lots of buffaloes. And it's fucking long. It's fucking long. Yes. We watched it in its entirety, and then it went to some other nature program without being called up to the trial. Yegi and my mom weren't the only people sitting in that waiting room. So there'd be whole families waiting for their relatives who were defendants in other courts. And one woman came down and she said, boy, boy, you should see that near court number 15. There's TV cameras and there are all these photographers standing around. There must be a very important trial going on. And Yegi and I just looked at each other and, yeah, we know. Mom and Yegi were stuck in the waiting room. They were shut out of my trial. Inside, the courtroom looked like a nondescript government office. 
except for the absurdly threatening emblem of Iran's judiciary. The scales of justice balanced on a sword. The two cameras at the front of the room told me that this trial was going to be a made-for-Iranian state TV event. My only goal was to make sure it didn't go according to their script. That's coming up right after this. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's Best Eggs. Only Eggland's Best Hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. The courtroom filled up with a lot of bearded guys. Then Judge Salavati came in, and I asked for permission to approach the bench. I wanted to ask him face-to-face to let me out on bail, to see my wife more often, anything that could improve my situation. Salavati shook my hand, Then he nodded at the cameras and said, look at what a headache you've made for me. Headache for you? I asked him. I've been in prison for a year for doing absolutely nothing. He didn't answer. The bailiff nudged me back to my seat. Then Salavati read the charges against me. I was being accused of collecting classified information and spreading anti-regime propaganda. The whole thing was a watered-down, less combative version of my interrogations. The same leading questions about how I was a CIA operative using the cover of being a journalist. By this point, I had rehearsed my answers to these questions so many times that they were automatic. I hadn't committed any crimes. I'd been a journalist. All the information I reported was public. I'd never spied or conspired with spies. It wasn't difficult to refute their arguments. But I also knew it didn't really matter. I was defending myself for myself. Jason Rezaian, who holds both U.S. and Iranian citizenship, went on trial today charged with espionage. His trial is being held behind closed doors. My editor at the Washington Post, Doug Gell, went on NPR to talk about the first day of my trial. What happened was a proceeding behind closed doors that lasted about two hours that involved the judge reading uh, the charges against Jason to... Jason and to his lawyer and to virtually no one else. Those who were shut out included his wife, Yegi, uh, his mother, Mary, who's been in Tehran trying to attend the trial, as well as the Washington Post. We'd sought a visa that would have allowed us to be there. Uh, those requests were unanswered. 
it was a sham trial from the start. That's Dave Bowker again, one of my American lawyers. We were getting really detailed reports of what was going on, and, and we didn't like the way it sounded and really felt for you. Officially, my trial was supposed to take place over the course of a week. My first trial date was late May, but then the second didn't come until early June. Third, July. And still, no verdict. And what I remember so well is that the trial dates came out of nowhere and basically tracked developments in the nuclear negotiations. And every time there was a big development in your case or any big public announcement about your case, it coincided with some impasse in the negotiations. And, and it really did feel like the, the Iranians were, were just tightening the screws in your case in order to kind of get the U.S. negotiators to relent uh, on certain issues. It was like there was this massive hurricane of geopolitical forces, and your case was whirling around in the eye of that storm. And so, as intense as the trial was for me, it was just a subplot in this bigger story of the nuclear talks. And that deal was hitting some serious headwinds. Close, but still no deal. That is the message from Vienna, where more foreign ministers... We have never been closer. At this point, this negotiation could go either way. Obama threatening to pull the plug on the Iran nuclear deal as that deadline is pushed back. I will walk away from the negotiations if, in fact, uh, it's a bad deal. Wendy Sherman was leading those talks on the U.S. side. And to her, they felt incredibly fragile. Were there times when you thought the negotiations were going to fall apart? Absolutely. Of course. Of course. I know that you've uh, probably heard the story of I was in Geneva. Zarif was already there. I'd met with him. John Kerry was in London, uh, was coming our way. This was back in February of 2015. John Kerry's chief of staff, John Finer, was with the Secretary of State. Wendy Sherman called Secretary Kerry and I in Secretary Kerry's hotel room to report that the Iranians had moved backwards on a whole range of positions that we thought they had taken in the prior talks. I called uh, Kerry and I said, I'm not sure you should come. We haven't made the progress that you wanted us to. And Secretary Kerry said to Wendy, tell them I'm not coming. I think you should tell them that if this is where they are, there is no value in my getting on a plane and and flying out there. The end. The pressure worked that time, and Kerry ended up going to Geneva. There was another time when we were in Lausanne, which is where a long swath of the negotiations uh, took place, where we had thought one night that Iran had made a series of what we considered to be concessions that would allow us to move forward on a piece of the deal. The next morning, conversations uh, started, the negotiations resumed, and it was as if the night before his conversation had never taken place. At some point later in that day, Secretary Kerry walked himself by Foreign Minister Zarif's room. Secretary Kerry went to Zarif's room and said, you know, if you can't do it, you can't do it. Either get back, go back and get more instructions or just say it can't happen. There was a final time when we were actually in Vienna at the very end game of the, the nuclear talks 
when Secretary Kerry and Foreign Minister Zarif were shouting at each other so loud in a dining room that Secretary Kerry's kind of main personal aide had to walk in and say, like, the whole room next door can hear you guys shouting at each other. Even up until the last week, uh, there were big hurdles to get over, and it was always obviously a little bit of a dance. That's John Kerry. If you've negotiated before and you know something about those kinds of negotiations, you you know there's always the anticipatable last-minute, quote, glitches that aren't so much glitches as negotiating strategy. So we had a pretty good sense of um, caution, if you will. Sherman and the other diplomats hold up in the Palais Coburg for a month, trying to finalize the last details. Then, on July 14th, they announced a deal. A landmark deal signed in Vienna, but reactions from governments across the world have differed greatly. It is a practical, realistic deal. An agreement to curtail Iran's nuclear program hammered out at a negotiating table instead of on a battlefield. This deal demonstrates that American diplomacy can bring about real and meaningful change. Change that makes our country and the world safer and more secure. It was huge news. But guess what wasn't in the deal? There was no mention of me or the other American hostages. And my trial was still dragging on. The nuclear negotiations that recently concluded have, sadly, provided no resolution to Jason's case. How do we get them on? How do we make deals with a country that depends in large part in trust that actually sees our journalists and don't let them come home? It, it's shocking. I should have been reporting on this story. Instead, I'd been edited out of it. At least, that's what it seemed like to me. I was beginning to despair that you would ever get out. That's Carol Morello, the Washington Post reporter who was covering my case. Things just seem to be getting worse for you. And I really, I I sense no urgency by the Iranians in letting you free. Sometime not that long before the Iran deal was actually struck, I was speaking with the head of the North America desk for, from the Iranian foreign minister. And he was complaining that coverage of Iran had taken a turn for the worst and gotten much more critical. And I said, well, I've written some of those stories. What are you talking about specifically? And he sort of dodged that question. But he said to me, he goes, you need to come to Iran and see what it's like. You need to come and report from there yourself. And I told him, I said, well, actually, I have reported there in the past. But I will point out that we already have a reporter in Iran He just hasn't been able to write for more than a year. And suddenly he remembered something he had to do and left. But I saw and heard nothing from the Iranians to suggest that there was a chance you were going to get out anytime soon. So you you didn't see my situation as necessarily linked with with the deal? I, I thought it could have been. I thought it should have been. I knew they were talking about you, but they were always talking about you on the sidelines of the deal. They were not making you part of the talks. And so I thought it was entirely possible, maybe even likely, that this deal would be concluded and you and the other other Americans who were in prison there would still be enough in prison. From where I sat, it was impossible not to feel betrayed. Those talks seemed like my best hope of getting out of this shithole. Now that the ink was dry on that deal, 
it looked very much like the U.S. government had decided against saving me. But then, at the White House, something happened that showed my family and friends I hadn't been forgotten, not even by President Obama. Good afternoon, everybody. The day after the deal was signed, Obama held a press conference. Yesterday was a historic day. And Major Garrett of CBS News asked a question about me and the other hostages. Can you tell the country, sir, why you are content with all the fanfare around this deal to leave the conscience of this nation, the strength of this nation unaccounted for in relation to these four Americans? Could you comment? I got to give you credit, Major, for how you craft those uh, those questions. For the, the notion that I'm content as I celebrate with American citizens languishing in Iranian jails? Major, that, that's nonsense. And you should know better. I've met with the families of some of those folks. Nobody's content. And our diplomats and our teams are working diligently to try to get them out. Well, I remember Obama was really angry at the Major Garrett question. That's Ben Rhodes, one of Obama's closest advisors. You know, even kind of pulled me aside after, you know, did you see that? You know, God, that's such bullshit. But I think what Obama's reflecting is the frustration of being in government and you're you're really trying to solve the problem, you know? And, and we believe deeply that the nuclear deal is actually going to be helpful to solving the problem. And to have your kind of motivation question that you don't care about this. Um, that was a massive trigger for Obama. And I, I've rarely seen him as angry at a, a question from a reporter from the way that he was at, when Major Garrett phrased that question. In retrospect, that exchange demonstrated just how tense it was for everyone working on my case. So much of their work was being done in secret. But they also had a responsibility to my family and to the American people to be transparent not only to promise they were doing their best to free me, but to prove they could deliver. Bottom line, I felt left behind. My mom had said I'd have to go through this process to get to the other side. But what if the process was never-ending and there was no other side? Coming up on 544 days, things have to get worse before they can get better. And then there were these statements being made by Iranian political figures that seemed to suggest that maybe he could not only be in prison, but that he could be executed. And Brett McGurk starts to feel the pressure from the White House. I remember walking out of the Situation Room. Susan came up to me, and she, like, grabbed me by my suit jacket and said, go get this done. That's next time on 544 Days. Five Hundred and Forty Four Days is a Spotify original podcast from Gimlet, Crooked Media, and A Twenty Four. It's hosted by me, Jason Rosian. Our senior producer is Matt Frassica. Julie Carley is our associate producer. Our editor is Allison McAdam, with fact checking by Amy Tardif. Mixing and sound design by Emma Munger. Additional sound design by Josephine Holtzman of Future Projects. Our theme music is by Ramtin Arablouei, and we have more original music by Ramtin and Emma Munger. 
Additional music by Katherine Anderson, Haley Shaw, and Peter Leonard. Production support from Sydney Rapp, Gabby Mrazowski, and Renita Jablonski. The executive producers are Sarah Geismer, Jess Lubin, Lyra Smith, Allison Falsetta, Colin Campbell, and Lydia Pullman. Special thanks to Tommy Vitor, Ravi Nandan, Clara Sankey, Dan Behar, and Jen Hahn.